You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes. This is Coach Brett with another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. Well, aren't we lucky? Today we have joined me in the Zentri training cave, the cave of doom and of dreams. (laughs) We are in the middle of the snow and ice apocalypse of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, early January 2024. And there's actually a little bit of snow and quite a bit of ice on the ground outside. And I wanted to go for a run today. It's been two days since the excruciation exam, ultra mega marathon mountain bike race. So I took one day off and then the pool's closed because of a mix of MLK day and also these uh, temperatures that Texas isn't used to, uh, 16 degrees which is actually 16 degrees below freezing and freedom units are Fahrenheit's we got going on here. So I thought I would hop on Zwift and get a ride in maybe to shake the legs out a little bit. And in the meantime, go ahead and start talking about the race we just did and some high points and some interesting tidbits and some really cool aerodynamic and strategic tactics that were used. And I'll do this while I'm getting ready to get on the bike. And that way that'll help me keep it somewhat short and from going on too long. But first, let's paint a picture of the Zentri training cave. Got the tri-bike in the middle of it. It's a Trek Speed Concept, rim brake edition. Still probably the fastest bike in triathlon. And it's got DI2 on it, but I don't use it lately, the shifting lately, because I also have a Zwift Hub rear wheel trainer. The Hub 1, actually, the one where you shift with the remote clicker that uh, you put on your handlebars. I really like it because I move the clicker from the handlebars onto my finger, my index finger, and I can shift with my thumb on my index finger no matter where my hand is. It can be on a water bottle. It can be scratching my butt. It can be adjusting a fan, tapping on a keyboard to take a turn on Zwift. So there's that in the middle of the training cave. Got a fan overhead, got fans ahead, all using uh, remotes and such. So I can adjust fan speed and turn up the fans as it gets hotter and hotter. And then off to the side, we got a treadmill that is worn the F out. (laughs) But it still works. I would just rather run outside than use it. So let's go ahead and get out of here and go grab my laptop so I can bring it back in here and talk about the race while we're getting things together. I'm being followed by Zoe, one of the dogs, the Zentrite dogs. Where's River? He's looking out the front window to make sure he alerts us to all people that tread the snowy path in front of the house. And oh yeah, we are going to continue to cover the Pine Burden 320, the three-day bikepacking trip that Kai and I did. And I'll probably talk about that the second half of this episode. But let's go ahead and talk about the excruciation exam. So this is a race that's been going on forever. I first did it back in like 2008 or something. I don't remember the first year. And I found it to be one of the most difficult races I've ever done in my entire life. And got in over my head very quickly because I thought I knew how to mountain bike and I did not. (laughs) And the race starts off at a mountain bike park that is mild to medium. It's not a problem really. It gets harder as you go through it, but then you ride 
29 miles after you do one lap to this mountain bike park, which is uh, about nine miles. And they always hold this thing in January. So the first year I did it, I think it was 22 degrees outside. So well below freezing. And it warmed up throughout the day. Where is my laptop? Ah, there you are. And then you ride this other mountain bike park, which I think at that point I had either never ridden or only ridden part of it once in my entire life. And that mountain bike park is hard. It's very technical, very, very difficult with lots of big drops into deep, short gullies and right back up the other side again. So you got to really commit going downhill with no fear so that you can make it up the other side. And it's pine trees with pine tree roots. And those are real gnarly, you know, and lots of twisty, just crazy, challenging mountain bike terrain, I'd say for about two thirds of the park. And that portion of the race is about 12 miles. And then when you're done with that, you ride back on open road, 20 miles back to the first mountain bike park. And by the way, the open road is a mix of pavement and gravel. It might be 50-50 of each, but it's more like champagne gravel. It's not very technical or anything like that or chunky. It's just regular gravel, but a lot of it's pavement too, but hardly any traffic. It's fantastic. And you take a slightly different route on the way back. That way you get some variety and you end up with different mileage on the way back. So again, 20 miles on the way back. And then surprise, surprise, you mistakenly, I mistakenly, I think a lot of people mistakenly, because they have to say in the racing document, do not forget <laughs> when you show up at the first mountain bike park where you started, you're not done yet. You got to do another half a lap of the first mountain bike park. Thank God it's the easier half. But I did this race once, thought I was going to die of exhaustion because I bonked so bad at the second mountain bike park and then had to ride the rest of the way back. And then 10 years later, it took me 10 years to get up the nerve to do this race again. I think because Kai wanted to do it. And I was like, all right, let's go. And then with the 10 year gap, I forgot both times that you do. I did not know the first time. The second time I forgot that you got to do more mountain biking. So I put in all this effort the second time I did it to come into the gates of the mountain bike park fully exhausted depleted as I crossed the finish line, just like you should, only to find out I had four miles of mountain biking to do. <laughs> and that was a sad four miles of mountain biking of pure exhaustion. The race takes age groupers between five and a half to six and a half, seven hours. Pros can do it in four hours and a little bit of change, four and a half. And again, the mileage goes like this, nine miles mountain biking, 29, 29 miles open road, mix of gravel and pavement on a mountain bike which is disastrously slow. And then 12 miles of mountain biking, where a majority of that mountain biking is very difficult. And then 20 miles back, open road. And the past few times I've done this race, the way back has always been into a headwind, which on a mountain bike is really bad news. And then four miles mountain biking to the finish. So I've done the race now, I think four or five times. The first two, three times, I've kind of blocked from memory because of the PTSD of the exhaustion and the crashing and bonking and also just the pure frustration of being out on the open road on a mountain bike, sitting upright, going into a headwind on knobby tires and coming from a triathlon background, it is so frustrating. And I think that's why they call it the excruciation exam is for half the race, you are on completely the wrong bike for that race. But I've gone out and ridden the harder mountain bike park on a gravel bike to see if it's possible. And it's kind of possible, but it is so slow and so dangerous 
because you might break your bike, probably likely going to break your bike. And you're probably going to likely break your shoulder or your neck falling end over end doing a steep drop and then hitting a root on a on a road bike geometry uh, rigid frame with maybe a little bit of front suspension, like a suspension stem or something. It's just bad news. And I've done some calculations and some testing, having ridden some of the mountain biking with a gravel bike and compared times, it would be actually a break even if you rode a gravel bike than if you rode a mountain bike. Yes, the gravel bike would be a lot faster out on the open road, but the amount of time that you lose on a gravel bike trying to ride the mountain bike trails is so substantial that it more than washes out any advantage it would have on the open road. So I think it was three years ago, I came up with a great compromise. I found out that it was not banned to use aero bars on your mountain bike for this race. And you see in some races like Leadville, pro mountain bikers even use aero bars on their bikes because there'll be long sections of open road and that lets them get nice and aero and you don't feel quite as frustrated out on the open road. So I went back through some photos of the race from years prior and saw aero bars. See, Unzen Tribe, we like to do our research. And then I asked around and a few local officials in the mountain bike racing scene said, yeah, at that race, you can totally use aero bars. So I did. And it ended up being fantastic. It was a little awkward at first mountain biking with aero bars on the front of your bike. You worry you're going to bang your face into them or something. But you learn pretty quickly how not to poke your eye out with the end of an aero bar. <laughs> and back then, I used the perfect bike for that race. I had a hardtail Orbea with really nice plush front suspension that also had a lockout on the front suspension. And I had this race experience that was like total redemption. First off, I'd done an Ultraman by then and a whole lot more Ironmans. So I knew how to pace myself. I knew how to fuel better so that I would feel better and have even energy the entire time. And I'd already been doing some more mountain bike racing. And so my mountain bike skills had improved a bunch. And also I had ridden the more difficult mountain bike park. And by the way, that's called Rocky Hill Ranch. That's the really hard one, Rocky Hill. The easy one is called Bluff Creek, but even Bluff Creek has the, the, like the last third of it. It's pretty hard. It's very similar to Rocky Hill. So I mountain biked the first part of it. Actually, I camped out there the night before. That was pretty cool. Got up, knocked out the first part of the race on my front suspension, nice lightweight cross-country mountain bike, hit the open road, got in my aero bars, locked out the front suspension, and rode calmly and coolly to the other mountain bike park, rode the other mountain bike park, which was kind of challenging on a hardtail, but still not that bad. And then turned around, rode the 20 miles back, locked out suspension, hardtail, aero bars, remembered that I still had four miles of mountain biking to go, opened up the front suspension, rolled through the last four miles, came to the finish line and celebrated a nice, happy finish. And one of my, uh, honestly, more accomplished successes <laughs> in my athletic career. The race is so hard and it's such a mess with your brain kind of race because for half the race, you are on the wrong kind of bike. And then I think it was two years ago, Kai raced it with me either for his first or second time. And he won his age group and got a real high ranking overall. And then this year he decided to race pro, did pretty good. There was a little bit of drama with some people taking the wrong trail at first because it's an older mountain bike park and there's some confusion. So they had to, he was in a group that sat back a little bit to let the race come back together, but it's not that big of a deal. And I think he ended up getting fifth pro this year. But back to my race, 
Last year, I rode a full suspension mountain bike. I quote unquote upgraded to a full suspension from a hardtail and it ends up it's a slower bike, but it's a beefier bike and more plush. And I got tired of mountain bike racing, especially marathon mountain bike racing, long distances on a hardtail, which was as I get older, you know, like it's just abusive on the back. And I used to have a really nice full suspension back in the late 90s, a Cannondale Super V. And I know what full suspension feels like. <laughs> And it makes riding long days on rough trails so much more tolerable. And so I had sold the hardtail, especially because a race commentator at the Huntsville race that I was doing goes, oh my gosh, that guy's on a hardtail out here. And it's a really rough race. And I thought, that's a sign. I need to upgrade to a full suspension bike. So now I ride a Canyon Neuron, which really isn't a cross-country bike. It's more of like a downcountry trail bike, which is kind of like an all-purpose mountain bike. It's not really meant for racing, racing. It's not high speed. It's meant more for uh, rougher terrain and just having more fun. It's still an excellent high-quality bike. It just doesn't have quite the aggressive stance, and it's got a little bit longer travel. But as a taller, bigger guy, it's actually pretty great for me because I could use a bike that's not the lightest thing possible because I'll probably break it. Now, Kai races a Trek Super Caliber, and that thing is a race rocket. And he's the type of person that can put that to use. So back to last year's race, I actually had a really good time. Even though I didn't go all that fast and I didn't have a great result, standings-wise, I came second to last in my age group. And when I look back at Strava, it says, I beat somebody in my age group. Wow. And it's not a big race. There was, I think, 11 finishers in my age group, and I got 10th, something like that. But it took me six and a half hours, and I felt like I really got a good race out of my body. There was definitely things I would change. Uh, the tread on my front tire was a little bit too heavy duty and overkill. I kind of held back and treated it more as a joy ride. And this year, Kai said, Dad, you ought to race this thing. See how fast you can actually go. And he said that quite a bit lately about my marathon mountain bike races because I treat them more as like a joy ride because I'm not that great at mountain biking. So I don't want to get hurt or killed out there. So I kind of hold back and just enjoy it. And I really like starting at the back and seeing how many people I pass. Now in triathlon, coming from a swim background, I have the opposite problem. I come out of the water towards the front and then I try to minimize how many people pass me and every person that passes me is demoralizing, you know? <laughs> well, if I started off in the front of a marathon mountain bike race, I would be passed by almost everybody throughout the race and it would just be so demoralizing. I'd be like, oh my gosh. But if I start in the back, and then I work my way up, every person that I pass gives me like an emotional boost. So that's a cool strategy that you can use for racing where you're not uh, all that great at that one sport. And start at the back, so many people you pass. There goes a truck down the icy street in front of my house. He didn't slide into a mailbox, so that's hopeful. So anyway, for this race, I thought, oh, the past two races, the Fredericksburg race, same thing. I thought, man, I'm gonna go harder and uh, try to improve my, my standings and my time and actually uh, get like a better result. And I mean, but that comes with skill that you develop. Mountain biking is so technical that you got to move from just trying to not crash and die to actually being good enough where you can apply like racing tactics and such and really trying to beat people. And over the past couple years, the second half of Kai's uh, mountain bike racing career in high school, I started racing the local mountain bike race circuit. And also because that was some of the racing that was available during the pandemic and after the pandemic. And I started getting faster. And these are races that are shorter. So like an hour, hour and a half. And just like early on in triathlon, when I started improving, once I figured out how to actually race triathlons, I started progressing and moving up in the standings. Instead of being one of the last finishers, I started 
being one of the uh, middle of the pack finishers. And then I started being too fast for, I think mountain biking goes cat three. And so I started racing cat two and then I started, yeah, I think my sweet spot is cat two and mountain bike racing short course. Well, what they call, you know, regular course, not marathon mountain biking. And I do enjoy it, but I've spent two decades building a long distance endurance engine and learning to love like solving the puzzle of longer races. So for me, marathon mountain biking is where it's at. And those take anywhere from four to six to seven to eight hours, depending on the course. So yeah, this year I had a goal of actually trying to race it more. I've raced it. I've done it a few times. So I know some pretty cool race tactics to apply. I don't mind the open road section. And in a weird way, I kind of enjoy it because with error bars, as I pass people, <laughs> I feel smart. And I'm not the only one. I didn't count them this year, but last year I counted and there was four of us that I just saw uh, through my peripheral vision with aero bars racing. And then my engineering brain, I really like figuring out new things to try at this race to see if they make much of a difference. And the big thing I tried this year was taping the vents on the front of my helmet for two purposes. One, it's so cold, I did it to block airflow through my helmet. And another one, if you tape off the vents on your helmet, it turns your regular road helmet into more of an aero helmet. And then of course, you know, there's aid station and support crew hand up strategies that go along with the race, which are a lot of fun to mess with. And then, yeah, Kai was going to race it pro for his first time. So just a little bit of a spoiler alert. I did the exact same time as last year, but the race was harder this year for some reason. I think if I go back and look at the the map of last year versus this year, there's a few more miles of mountain bike trails this year. So I finished the race just above the 50% mark for my age group. And there was a lot more racers this year. There was double the amount of people in my age group this year. And I definitely felt like I raced harder. And I did execute my race really well. So that was a lot of fun and enjoyment in its own right. You know, when you execute something well, it just feels good. And that's a success. So the race is less than an hour and a half away. It's like an hour, 20 minutes away. So we woke up here, drove there in the morning, left the house at 5.30, I ate cereal here and then a cliff bar on the way. <laughs> oh my God. And something funny happened. Kai got up early and made himself pancakes. He likes to do pancakes. He likes to do whatever Keegan, he follows Keegan Swenson, who's just a legend and within reason tries to do a lot of what Keegan Swenson does because it definitely works. And that's smart. But we were loading up my truck and then Kai came into the living room and said, Dad, did you do something with my pancakes? Or did you eat my pancakes? Something like that. And I was like, no. And I knew exactly what had happened. The dog ate the pancakes. <laughs> and now's not the time to get upset. We got to get to a race. You don't want to be punishing a dog in the middle of all that. So Emily said, y'all keep loading the car. I'll make some pancakes real quick. So that was the morning drama leaving the house. And Kai's girlfriend came with us and her name's Kylie, which is really cute. Kai and Kylie. And they, and she and Emily were going to be our support crew. And then they also brought Ripple with them. And Ripple is Kylie's pit bull. <laughs> That's the same age as River. He's three years old. And he's one of these pit bulls that'll change your mind about pit bulls, where you learn that it's actually the dog, the individual dog with the behavior problem, not the breed. This dog is just the sweetest, most docile, kindest lump of fur that just wants to sit in your lap. And other dogs will come up to it and, and uh, you know bark at it or whatever, and he just stands there and looks at them of just pure indifference. And not only would he never hurt a fly, I don't think you could get him to hurt a fly if you, if you try. But anyway, so he makes a great dog to take places because he's so calm and chill. So that's the race crew. And we're on our way to the race. We get there. Unlike triathlons, you know, they don't have to start 
at the crack of dawn. We did our packet pickup, got our race numbers, put them on, and the race started at eight o'clock. So they did in the meadow some pre-race announcements, this, that, and the other. Before the race, I'd asked the race director if I could get a bottle hand up as we're leaving the park after the first uh, nine miles. And he said, yeah, that's not a problem. So that was my strategy. And last year, or maybe the year before, I learned that there's a different strategy for the pros than there are for the age groupers. And that's a lot like triathlon. You'll notice in the more knowledgeable think tank and commentary sections of triathlon, like slow twitch forums, somebody without as much experience will say, this age grouper is so fantastic. He or she did the race in like this amount of time. And it doesn't take long before somebody says, yeah, that's an age grouper race though. That time is not as comparable to the pros as what you think. They may have been as fast as a pro, but the pros race differently. And this is a really cool thing to know about triathlon and about bike racing in general. The pros are so good that they almost don't think at all about how they're going to finish the race. They know they're going to finish the race and finish fast. So instead, what they're more concerned about is what the other pros are doing and they race reactively. If this person tries to break away, they chase them down. If this person holds back, the rest will hold back and lose time on purpose to let the most dangerous person go on a break on their own, but then have to fight the wind on their own. So yeah, there's a lot of game playing and playing off of each other and tactics happening at the front of the race where age groupers are trying to finish the race as fast as possible. And then therefore you have a more like even race and try not to go too hard at any given point. A pro can go really hard and then recover from that over and over and over again. Age grouper, you only got so many times that you can go really, really hard and you've damaged your overall race. So you've got to keep it more even for long distance stuff. So a couple of years ago, I was giving Kai some advice on how to do this race because I've done it a few times already. And I said, you know, you got to go easy the first part and don't get caught up in the, the battle that is mountain bike racing to be at the front so early on because the race is so long, it doesn't really matter. That's wasted energy that you'll need towards the end. And he said, dad, that's not how this race works. <laughs> yeah, I think it's after he raced it one time before he told me this. I was like, really? What, what are you talking about? And he said, for us, when we leave the mountain bike park, you want to be with the lead group. You need to be at the front because when we hit the open road, the difference between being in a pack and rotating out in a pace line on a mountain bike versus being dropped off the back of that pack and riding the open road solo or with just a, a person or two randomly because you held back and trying to save your effort is so dramatic that the time lost riding not with that front group will ruin your race. Race is over like already at that point. So I thought that's really interesting. You got to leave both mountain bike parks with the front pack so that you can ride as a peloton out on the open road. What you do in the mountain bike park doesn't really matter because drafting doesn't really matter in mountain biking. But by the time you leave the mountain bike park, you want to be caught up with the lead group. And that's the strategy of the pros is in the mountain bike park to try to break apart the pack as soon as they can while leaving the mountain bike park. Versus when I leave the mountain bike park, over the horizon, there's there's a string of us kind of stretched out, kind of individuals here and there, and a couple people riding together, and a lot of solo riders all fight in the wind kind of independently. And on occasion, you know, they gather up as a, as a little peloton together, but it's not at all like the lead pack. And I went back and looked at 
the average pace while they're out on the open road. And they're averaging something like 20 or over 20 miles an hour on the open road as a group on mountain bikes. And that just about blew my mind because riding solo on the open road, even with aero bars on a mountain bike, you're lucky to be doing, I think like 17 miles an hour on average. Yeah, this race I averaged like 16.9 with aero bars on a mountain bike. And the pro group is averaging 20. And I think most of them ride without aero bars because they know that they're going to be in this Peloton group and in their tight-knit group of rotating in and out and their hardcore mountain biking that they're going to be doing, they don't need aero bars. So yeah, again, it's a different race for different caliber of riders. And I just think that that's so cool. So the race starts off, I'm in the back. I'm guessing I was going to shave about half an hour off of my time because I was a better rider than last year. So instead of six and a half hours, it was going to take me six hours. So that's how I planned out my fuel and my water. Actually, I planned it out for six and a half hours just in case. And you always plan a little bit of extra of that in case something happens. You get a flat or, you know, something, I don't know, whatever happens, you're out there longer than you think. So a little bit of buffer of fuel and water is nice. And the first part of the race is about half a mile of open meadow, turn to ranch road, and then around the pond, and then into single track and into the woods in single track, which is really nice to kind of string people out a little bit. So by the time you hit the single track, you've kind of found your place already in line. And I'm towards the back. I think by then I'd only passed one person going in to the single track. And I'm just bebopping along. But also in my mind, I'm like, go a little bit harder than before. You can do it. And I am. I'm going decent speed. And I'm really happy. It's 35 degrees. But it's going to warm up to over 60 by the end of the race. So that's nice. And I've got a couple little aerodynamic tricks up my sleeve that I'm excited about using to see if I can go a little bit faster than before. I've definitely improved my fueling and I'm going to actually race this thing. And right off the bat, I started passing people because my mountain bike skills have improved. I've got more confidence on the bike. And I think pretty quickly I passed like four people. Two of them were having mechanicals, but those count. (laughs) A lot of bike racing isn't about what you do on the bike. It's what you do before you get on the bike and make sure your bike's in working order and luck. And also, I have a lot of confidence at this one mountain bike park, the Bluff Creek Mountain Bike Park. I've been riding it forever, and I really do enjoy riding there. And I was already enjoying my first little aerodynamic hack, which was the tape across the front vents of my helmet, and also knowing exactly what to wear for the conditions, because Kai and I had just done three days of bikepacking in these exact same conditions. So I knew how many layers to wear and how to strategically wear certain things that are easy to shed and also how much fuel and water I'm gonna need and where it's gonna be. So I'm happy, man, I'm having a really good time. So let's start off with the headgear and the clothing. This is really interesting. Underneath my helmet, I was wearing a Lycra skull cap kind of thing, which is real thin, which is really good for riding in cold weather. Oh, and also I was wearing a neck uh, gaiter, you know, that you pull up a little bit. I've got cold weather asthma. And if you start off really hard in cold weather and start breathing really hard, it'll kick off an asthma attack. So I had that pulled up to my nose, And what that does is it helps recirculate the air from your lungs that's warm and full of moisture and that keeps your lungs from drying out and having that asthma attack. It's a really good trick for those of you that have cold weather induced asthma as you start off exercising outdoors in the cold with something over your mouth, like the equivalent of like a COVID mask or a handkerchief or like a neck gaiter pulled up. And then after like 10 minutes or so, you don't need it anymore and you can pull it down. So I had that, but from experience at 35 degrees, I knew that my forehead will still get a little bit cold. And I have a high hairline. I'm not going bald, but I do have a real high hairline and a big forehead that's 
bare and into the wind. And my nice helmet that I got this past year is really a great summer helmet with great ventilation. So I taped off the vents with black electrical tape and the helmet's black and white already. So it actually matched pretty good. If you look closely, you can kind of see it in pictures from the race. And it's an old trick that lots of cyclists have done for a long time. You can actually buy one cycling helmet uh, that has a plexiglass like clear shell that you can add over it for cold weather or to make it more aero. It's a thing. But this is the first time I've ever taped off the front vents of a road helmet. I've got a time trial helmet where I've taped off the front vent uh, with the sticker that you wear during an Ironman to make it more aero on colder races and then definitely not put over the holes in the front uh, during uh, hot races so you get more airflow. So this really isn't my first rodeo with that, but it is with a road helmet. And it was great. And I was riding along, perfect temperature on my head, my face, uh, my gloves. I was wearing cycling gloves because for mountain biking, uh, padded gloves do help with the abuse your hands take. But then over those gloves, I had it on glove liners. And those are just real thin gloves. So basically, the meat of my hands was double gloved, which was nice. And my fingertips and my thumb tip were single glove uh, with a thin glove. But that ended up being just perfect. And we'll get to my chest in a minute because that's where it gets really interesting. But the uh, I knew from experience that I didn't really need anything more than cycling shorts for my uh, lower half, especially at the beginning. We're going to be in the woods for a while, for almost an hour. And it's not going to be like high wind or anything like that. So it'll be a little bit cold, but I'll be fine. And when I was going through my gear looking for arm warmers and such, I remembered that I had... Uh, compression sleeves, calf sleeves, and they're black, and I could wear those. I also shaved my legs for the race because we're going to be out on the open road for um, three hours, so that's going to make a difference of a bit. And so I had on, you know, triathlon uh, compression calf legging sleeve things, whatever they're called, to go from, you know, your ankle up to just below your knees. And that kept my legs warm and also helps with blood flow in your legs, makes your legs feel better. And then uh, just regular shoes and socks. My torso gets a little bit unorthodox. I knew from recent experience that a very thin top long sleeve would be fine for the entire day underneath a cycling jersey that's very thin. Uh, even though it's going to get close to 60 degrees, I'm going to finish around that time, that that won't get too hot as the day goes on. And the long sleeve part, uh, Under Armour heat gear is like really thin long sleeve stuff. And it'll offer you know some protection, it's really tight fitting, so it smooths you out. And if I start to get warm, I can unzip the cycling jersey that's over it, the short sleeve cycling jersey, and uh, get some wind flow on my chest, and that'll cool me down, and that'll be fine, right? Well, that's not enough for your upper body at 35 degrees. <laughs> I'm like, well, what do I do? And, I, and one trick that I've done a bunch, and that I did at this race, was I put arm warmers on over this long sleeve thin base layer. And so just like as my hands get too warm and I can take off those thin over gloves, as my body starts getting warm throughout the day, I can take off the arm warmers, but I still have a thin protective layer under them to protect my arms. So it's like I'm kind of like wearing double arm warmers, but the arm warmers I'm wearing aren't uh, like the fleece lined ones. They are kind of more medium to lightweight ones. And that's definitely the strategy for cold weather stuff is layers. And that way you can finely modulate how much exposure you've got. So I was wearing my favorite arm warmers in the world, which are Primal Wear, the tattoo print ones. And they are a white base covered with cartoonish 
koi fish and dragons and I don't know if there's skulls and crossbones on them, but there's like dice and fireballs and all kinds of stuff. It looks like tattoo print and they're really, really cool and they're really bright and I wear them a lot because they make you really visible in traffic. So I had those over my arms, but that's still not quite enough for my torso because remember, I'm wearing a thin base layer and a thin cycling jersey, both body tight fitting and that's it so far for 35 degrees. That's not enough. Now I have a cycling or running vest that's wind block in the front and then meshish in the back. It's got mesh panels in the back. That would be perfect, except mine's like a size too big. And for mountain biking, that's one thing, but when you hit out on the open road, you don't want flappy anything. Most of your drag comes from your body and your clothing out on the open road. And also this vest doesn't have any pockets in the back. And I'm like, what could I wear that's the equivalent of a cycling vest with pockets in the back? My arms are plenty warm. I just need something on my torso and also that's trim and tight fitting. <laughs> and it hit me when I was getting my gear together the week before the race. And I tried it on the day before the race and I tried it on a couple days before the race. And I'm like, dang, dude, this looks like it's going to work. This looks cool. I had a triathlon racing top that's essentially a vest and it's full zip down the front. It's my Amrita brand one and it looks cool. It's black. So it matches everything. So I had that on as my final torso layer. And it was brilliant. It worked. And you may ask yourself, how did I get here? Where is my beautiful house? But you also may ask yourself, why didn't I wear that as my base layer underneath everything? And it's like, well, if I get hot, I want to be able to take this thing off. And this thing is made to take off quickly because it's a full zip. And it has pockets in the back. And I was able to carry a CO2 cartridge and like a tire lever. And I forgot what, oh, some gummy bears in a Ziploc or gummy worms, sour gummy worms in a Ziploc in my uh, jersey pocket in the back. And I had a strategy at my first two-hour aid station stop where I was going to switch out camelbacks. At that same time, I can unzip that vest off if I'm hot enough and take off the outer layer of uh, arm warmer and off the gloves, the extra over gloves, shed all that, and that's going to take seconds instead of trying to fiddle with things that are under other things and then add the other things back on again. So I definitely had a plan, and it did work. But let's get back to the race. So I'm riding along, really happy. I'm just warm enough. And I notice that as the race goes along in the mountain bike park, uh, Bluff Creek, I'm doing pretty good. By the end of the race, of that portion of the race, I passed like uh, four people. I moved my way up. And I think there's something like 60-something people in the long version of this race, which is a testament to this race about how crazy it is. You can only get 60-something people to sign up for it. <laughs> or the other marathon mountain bike races, I think, are easily double that. Oh, and a cool side note is they call it Bluff Creek because the property is a working cattle ranch with longhorn cattle, and there is a drop off of a bluff that the trail goes down, and it is so steep that the first time you ever encounter this thing, you're like, there's no way I'm riding down that. And I'll never forget the first time I ever saw it, and they actually had to pave it because it's so steep. And it's this terrible pavement, but it works. And it's not down the slope. It has to go down the slope sideways because it's so steep and it's such a big drop. It's basically a cliff face. And you go down that after about a third, the first third of the race is really easy. And then, yeah, you drop down that and then you ride in these meadows for the second third. And then you climb back up and then back down again uh, for the, and then back up again. And then the last third is pine forest that's real gully and, and technical and such that's more like uh, the, the really hard race ranch, uh, Rocky Hill. So I think the race leaders, the pro wave, they exited the ranch. It took them about, let's say 42 to 45 minutes. 
I'd have to go back and look at the race numbers. And I've done that enough already lately. And I came out at 52, 53 minutes, which is nice. And that's right on par with a good time for me. So I was happy. And I took a bottle hand up from Emily on the way out. And that's your first allowed permissible, uh, quote unquote, unofficial aid station is you can take a bottle hand up. And asking Kai if he was going to take a bottle hand up leaving the park to get out on the open road, he said no, because if you took one right there, then it's downhill gravel and then a hairpin turn. And you can't be fiddling with a bottle, trying to put it in your frame and trying to keep up with this lead pack at that same time. You'd end up uh, with some sort of disaster and crashing. But me, you know, <laughs> I'm just pedaling along with a big smile on my face. I'm really happy. And I take my bottle from Emily. She hands it off successfully. I feel like I'm going really fast, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I uh, leave the ranch and then drop into the aero bars and immediately start catching people. And there's, you know, single people up over the horizon on this uh, country road that's asphalt and rolling hills. It's real pretty. And it's a mix of pine forest around there. It's called the Lost Pines area. And I think that's where we'll get into a couple of my other aerodynamic tricks for the bike is I had a spare bento box. Well, one, I put a bento box behind the uh, steer tube on the top tube, on the top tube, like you do with a lot of bikes, but mountain bikers are loath to do this for some reason, but I did it and that streamlines your bike. And then also the big gaping open triangle behind the head tube of the mountain bike uh, doesn't have anything there. And I had a spare bento box that fits in there perfectly. So I put that up in there. And so the whole front third of my bike is now this big flat wedge that's aerodynamically way better than before. And I've got aero bars. And then also full suspension mountain bikes, and I guess maybe almost all mountain bikes now, have a ton of exposed seat tube that's nearly vertical into the wind, which is an aerodynamic disaster for a round tube to be like that. And I had a spare bento box that's actually really small and uh, it's elongated, but not very tall, but has Velcro straps. And I put that on my seat tube to turn my seat tube into a more aerodynamic uh, elongated teardrop shape. And I think that saves, I'd say about five watts of power, which I think over a three hour road event out, the, you know, out there on the open road. And I, I put like a tire lever or something, a CO2 in there or something like that. And the uh, that way it's storage officially both that and the bento box the extra bento boxes on the front tube the front of the frame it's storage if you actually put something in it and it's not a it's not technically a fairing so i think altogether that saved me about uh five minutes maybe eight minutes out on the open road and you may think some of you think that's a lot some of you think maybe it even saved even more it's hard to tell but you got to keep in mind that a mountain bike is an aerodynamic disaster. So anything that you do to it is going to be really helpful. It might save you more time than what you think. So it's hard to guess exactly how much time. I thought about using an aero bottle in the frame because I have one. I have, I have two in an aero uh, you know, frame holder and all that stuff, uh, bottle mount, bottle cage holder. And then I opted not to because I'm going to use three different round bottles during the race, one for each uh, section of the race. And uh, to do that, I would need three aero bottles to swap out. And I don't own three aero bottles, I only own two. And then the down tube of the mountain bike is so thick that it actually shields the round water bottle pretty good. 
And at that point, I was just tired of it all. So I just gave up. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to use a round water bottle. And also, um, mountain biking, trying to drink from a bottle and put it back in the frame is, is uh, pretty hard. So you don't want to be messing with trying to make sure that things are locked, things are going back into a bottle cage that's kind of awkward while riding with one hand off-road on a mountain bike park. And then the other thing that mountain bikers love to do is wear camelbacks because that allows you to keep your hands on your handlebars while you drink water. All you got to do is briefly put the hose of the camelback in your mouth and then put your hand back on the handlebars and then you can control and shift and break the bike while drinking water at the same time and drink as much water as you want safely. So yeah, for fuel and hydration, I started off the race with a two and a half hour fuel bottle with a mix of Gatorade and table sugar and sodium citrate for electrolyte and then a full camelback, two liter camelback on my back. And that should take me through two and a half hours to the first real aid station. Now I did take a hand up bottle from Emily on the way out of the bike park to hit the open road because on the aero bars, I have a water bottle mount between the elbows, BTA between the arms, and that actually makes you faster. So as I left the park and I picked up that bottle from Emily, I put that between the, between the bars and I figured I might drink the water from it. I might not. I didn't know for sure if my two liters of water was going to last me two and a half hours. Turned out it did. And in my race notes for next year, I'm going to leave that in there as a comment that if I pick up a water bottle on the way out of the park, it doesn't need to be completely full. It could be like half full. But then I get the arrow benefit of it between my arms out there on the open road. So anyway, I'm out riding and I start gaining on people because of a mix of my time trial background background from triathlon. And I know how to put down power nice and evenly and keep my head down and keep arrow. And also my bike setup is probably altogether with the arrow bars about 50 watts faster because it's not just the bike. It's putting me in a position that's more aerodynamic. So it's probably 50 watts faster than the average person out there that I'm racing against. So as I start passing people, a little Peloton kind of forms around me, <laughs> which is really fun. And I got like one or two comments like, whoa, you got arrow bars. I should have thought of that. And it's like, yeah, dude, it's cool. It makes the road part way more tolerable, you know? And then after about half an hour, I took a look behind me and I've got a train of people behind me. I think I've got like five to six people behind me all drafting off of me. And I don't mind that at all early on in the race because there's so much more race to go that if people are drafting off of me at that point, you know, good for them. And then also... Uh, the last time I did this and then also this time, what happened was eventually somebody that's really powerful will say, hey, I'll take a pull at the front and I'll say, go ahead, man. And then they'll take a pull at the front and then I'll sit up and ride easy for a little bit, but it's too easy. And then I'll take a pull at the front and then we'll rotate out for a while. But then my pulls at the front, uh, me just going like, you know, average effort, the uh, people drafting off of me can't keep up. And I end up towards the end of the first road part, you know, which is almost 30 miles long, uh, dropping almost everybody that can't keep up with me because it's not that I just have a more aero setup and it's a little bit easier for me to ride faster. I'm also mentally, I think, more dedicated to riding in the aero position than other people are from my triathlon background. Like I know how to sit in the aero position and just burn up the road. And most other mountain bikers don't come from that background. And they'll, you know, sit up or, you know, go through a turn and sit up and you get little gaps, you know, and then they have to fight that gap to catch back up. And then over time, it just wears on them and they can't keep it up. And they eventually let me go. 
But something really cool happened at the very end of the first road portion. I saw a guy wearing a jersey that said Kingwood on it, and I grew up in Kingwood. And I looked at the race registration list, you know, before the race to see who was racing, if I recognized anybody. And one uh, was a guy from Kingwood that was almost in my age group. So we're about the same age. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't recognize the name, but I just thought that was cool. There was somebody from Kingwood. And then uh, also Tour de France current pro Lawson Craddock, who lives in Austin, grew up in Houston, had signed up for the race. Everybody's really excited that there was going to be a Tour de France pro in the race. But then it turned out he didn't show up, and I think he said he was sick. He had the flu or something like that, and then couldn't race. And that really that was a real bummer, man, because that would have been so awesome. It would have added a whole other like, dynamic to the race to have a current Tour de France pro. And he's also the pro that in 2018 crashed on day one and then rode the rest of the tour and came in dead last. But every day he raised money for rebuilding the velodrome in Houston, and he raised over $200,000 by telling people, hey, don't feel bad for me. Donate money to this charity to rebuild the velodrome in Houston to help kids bike. And he f- did the entire, and finished, did the entire Tour de France and finished with uh, a cut up face and a broken shoulder, I think. So in a way, he came in dead last in the Tour de France, but he also, in a way, kind of won the Tour de France. And uh, look at this guy, he's our hero kind of way. And that was the guy that was going to show up at this race. Everybody's so excited. But then, yeah, it didn't pan out, so that was too bad. But anyway, next year. So I'm riding the end of the road section, and there's some tailwind, and I pull up next to this guy and with the Kingwood something on his jersey, and I go, hey, are you from Kingwood? And he said, yeah. And I said, hey, I am too. I grew up there. I live in College Station, half forever. But yeah, I went to Kingwood High, and he's like, oh, right, I did too. And we're two years apart, which is really frustrating because we almost know people, <laughs> the same people. <laughs> We started naming off people, and I think out of like the five people we named off, we knew like one of them, uh, both of us. And then that was really great. So I made a new friend, and he said he's got routes and stuff uh, like off-road and on-road around Kingwood to bike. Kingwood's really frustrating with, with cycling. It's awesome for running, but for real road cycling, it's, it's really frustrating. It's a fantastic neighborhood with tons. It's like 100-something miles of bike path connecting the whole neighborhood, but it's bike path, which is really difficult to bike on. And the roads are really difficult to road ride on because uh, they're curb and narrow and um, nowhere to go and a lot of traffic because it's Houston. And no way in and no way out. It's, it's really frustrating because it's really beautiful. But anyway, it was cool to meet him and then say that, oh, yeah, we should uh, meet up and then uh, I'll give you some routes. And next time you come to Kingwood, because I go to Kingwood a lot because my mom still lives there. And, oh, dude, one of the highlights of the races was meeting this guy. And so we're talking, sitting up, because we have a tailwind, so there's no point in getting all arrow and stuff. And he's like, dude, I noticed that you're wearing flat, you're you're riding flat pedals. And I go, yeah, I ride flat pedals for mountain biking, because if I fall over and and crash, I need to get off this bike. I need to launch, eject off this bike. Because if I go down, he's a, he's a big, tall guy too. And he agreed with me. Because if I, if I start to fall down and start going downhill, I do not want to be attached to this thing. I, I have nearly broken, well, I've broken many things falling while mountain biking. And I just find I actually bike faster and with more confidence off-road mountain biking specifically uh, if I ride with flat pedals. And I'm pretty good at flat pedals because I grew up BMXing. And I, can, I can bunny hop and do all kinds of stuff with flat pedals. I don't need to be clipped in to have good bike skills. And the, uh, the other thing is, is on the open road, I ride you know, clipless and gravel, I ride clipless. And I told him, this is an interesting fact, that our local Grand Fondo here in College Station, the two years that I raced it, 
I won it both years, straight up, like the whole thing. And the first year that I rode it, I rode the same bike both years. The only difference, but uh, power meter, same kit, same everything. The only difference with year one and year two was year two, I had a foot injury and I wore uh, running shoes and flat pedals. And I put out the exact same power and averaged the exact same speed and came in the exact same place, first place. And I'm not talking like age group, like I won the whole thing. <laughs> and like, you don't need clipless pedals for even power out on the road. I said, uh, well, I don't know if I said this then, it's kind of a blur, but what I do know is you definitely need clipless for road riding. Like if you're uh, attacking and uh, surges of power and stuff like that. And for me, I'm not doing that. That's Kai's race, not my race. And I am also, uh, because I'm on a mountain bike and I want to eject, which turned out I needed to do uh, during this race. We're going to get to that in a second, how I actually set off my Garmin crash alarm at the second portion of this race. And I saved myself by leaping off the bike and the bike went into a goalie and I didn't (laughs) because I was able to get off that thing as fast as I could. But anyway... Uh, so there was that commentary and then we pull up to where you pull into the second mountain bike park and it's uphill and it, it's a gravel road and they have drop bags. So at the start of the race, they have a trailer that you can drop a bag. You should put your race number and stuff on it and they will take it to 29 miles away to this uh, mountain bike park, right? And at the entrance to the mountain bike park is also the exit to the mountain bike park at Rocky Hill Ranch. And it takes me about two hours to do a full lap of this mountain bike park that's gonna be the race lap. There's some other trails mixed in there. But I went and pre-rode the course the week before the race to build up my confidence because this race is so technical, or this park is so difficult. And that really helped a lot. And I knew it was gonna take me about two hours. I'm also looking at past race results. It's gonna take me about two hours. And by now my Camelback is depleted, my fuel bottle is depleted. So uh, in my drop bag, and actually I use a drop bucket because I have a Camelback in there and it's a bladder, right? And you know, when people load stuff into a trailer, they can stack stuff people accidentally step on things. And if you've ever stepped on a camel, I've had a Camelback bladder explode one time when I fell and uh, landed on my back, either biking or trail running. I can't remember and rolled and the, the bladder actually popped. It's like an airbag. <laughs> but anyway, so I used not a five gallon bucket, which actually would be preferable, but like it's like a three gallon bucket, which is, or two and a half, which is one that used to contain like chlorine tablets for a pool with my race number on it on duct tape and such. And I have a camelback in there and uh, fuel bottles. And I swap out my camelback and Emily and Kylie are there too. And I, I asked, how's Kai doing? And, and they said, oh, he's doing great. He's like in third place. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Oh, and I'm listening to headphones, right? My, uh, it seems to be that with uh, marathon mountain bike racing and definitely trail running and such that the shocks headphones are fine. Uh, people don't seem to have a problem with them. You wearing those because you can hear what's going on and enjoy music. And these days are so long. I highly recommend it. I'm having a really good time. And um, I do my swap. And I take off the triathlon vest, you know, that I'm wearing, the triathlon racing top that I'm wearing that's acting as a vest. And as I'm doing that, I move things from that outer pocket to my my cycling jersey uh, outer pocket. I throw my gloves, my extra, my top arm warmers, and my beanie cap, uh, my skull cap. 
Yeah, gloves, arm warmer, skull cap, and the triathlon uh, sleeveless jersey all into the bucket because now I've got room because I've taken some stuff out. And I swear, this takes like 20 seconds. It's great. And I, I was so fast doing it that the guy from Kingwood goes, well, I guess I'll see you later you know, out there. And I'm like, yeah, you'll probably catch me because <laughs> I'm not the greatest mountain biker. And he was obviously ahead of me you know, already from how good of a mountain biker he is. Uh, and I caught up with him out on the open road because I'm a better road biker than a mountain biker. And so, yeah, I take off. And then I'm riding along and the very first part of, the, of Rocky Hill Ranch actually isn't that bad. I'd say like the first third. It's like typical mountain biking, right? And I'm riding along, having a nice time. And then it starts to get hard. The really difficult section starts coming up. And damn, man, it is just so crazy. And huge drops that, like I mentioned earlier, you got to totally commit to these drops so that you can make it up the other side. But some of them have hairpin turns in them right before you do them. Uh, The bike handling skills that you need to do this stuff is definitely next level. But I rode two laps of it the week before and didn't crash. So my confidence is up. Oh, but I do have a problem is I swapped out my front tire because the race has 39 miles of road and my front tire is a, is a thicker, heavier tread that's not even a cross-country tire. It's more of like a, like a halfway between like cross-country and enduro tire. Is it a Maxxis Icon? But anyway, it's slow rolling out on the open road. It's great for a front tire in technical mountain biking. But I'm like, that thing is gonna slow me down out on the open road. And last year I rode with that tire out on the open road and I kind of regretted it. So I had swapped out my front tire for one of Kai's old cross country tires that was kind of worn down a little bit. So it was very much on the light end of cross country, not much tread left, but made for really fast out on the open road. Well, it turned out that, well, I had two choices. You know, I could use his old back tire or his old front tire. And I chose his old back tire because that was the most worn down. I should have chose his old front tire that had a little bit more tread on it. Because what I found was, as I was taking these turns on the race course, uh, if I was off the, the mi- very middle of the trail, the dirt part, and I was more into like a little bit of the leaves, the, the pine needles and the regular leaves, like off to the side just a little bit, um, and the looser stuff on the side, the tire had a tendency to, to slide out a little bit. And... It made handling the bike at race pace, um, you know, harder to handle. So it's a little sketchy. And that's the conundrum of this race is you have to, you try to ride the bike that's the fastest bike possible, but that can still handle the mountain bike racing at mountain bike pace and not get you hurt. (laughs) So anyway, I'm doing okay, but I'm starting to struggle a little bit. And I almost crashed a couple times because of the front tire. It's just a little bit uh, too slick and... But that's okay. And I'm wearing uh, running shoes and flat pedals, so I can hop off the bike and run like the, the harder section. And, uh, and I'm doing, I'm on time. And I am struggling a little bit though. And yeah, this turn and drop shows up that is the worst one of them all. And I paused at the top. And that's what you don't want to do. Because if you pause, then you lose your momentum and you're not going to go down. You're not going to go down and then come back up. And so I was like, crap, I paused at the top. I need to get off the bike and, and walk the section down. It's real short, but it's super, super steep. And as I'm getting off the bike to walk down, <laughs> I fall and I tumble. 
I'm like half on the bike, half off, and I lose, I lose it, and I tumble. And then it's comical. It's like somebody slipping and falling on ice and trying to stand up. Like, I'm trying to stand up and not fall down the side of this hill. And the more I stand up and try not to fall, the more I fall. And then I'm, now I'm caught up in the bike, and the, the bike's tumbling over me. And the bike twists, you know, the front, like, twists around, so the handlebars are pointing the wrong way. Plus, it's got arrow bars on it, you know. And, uh, and I'm in the middle of the trail, and I'm worried about somebody coming up and, and uh, me being in the way. It's the very first thing is if you fall while biking is make sure you don't take other people down with you. That's rule number one. But well, rule number one is the bike okay. And rule number two is don't take other people down with you. Don't be rude like that. And so I'm trying to get out of the trail. And my bike computer, I'm using my watch as my bike computer because all my nice expensive stuff that I could buy for myself actually end up going to Kai. So he's got the nice expensive bike computer. He's got the Garmin 850, 820, 860, I don't know, whatever. And I'm using uh, my watch as a bike computer <laughs> because it'll work, you know? And he gets, he gets the racing bike, the real racing bike and the real racing computer. And I couldn't be happier about it because it's so awesome to watch how fast he is. And anyway, this Garmin watch goes off with this thing I've never seen before. And it said... I knew what it was because I heard about it, you know, because I'm endlessly surfing the internet on on gear and, and tech and stuff. I work in IT. I just absolutely love this stuff. And the watch set off an alarm that said, crash detected alerting contacts or something like that. And I think there was a countdown. And by the time I saw it, it was like in five, four, three, one. You know, it's like, it felt like in 30, 20, two, one, bam, like that. And I was like, it had a yes, no, but I'm trying to drag my bike out of the trail and check myself to make sure I'm not injured, you know? And in a, so in a matter of seconds, it sends off an, an alert to Emily, I guess, who's in my contact list of people to alert. Uh, thank God it didn't send it to my mom. Holy cow. That would have been nuts. Okay. And then it said, the next thing was, do you want to send a message that you're okay? And I'm run walking my bike up the other side of this goalie. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm okay. So it's yes, no. And so I press a button. And apparently Emily said that she got this message that said, you know, Brett's been in a crash, emergency alert. Thank God it didn't send something to 911. I wonder, I'm trying to remember if that was an option. Also, do I want to call 911? And uh, I said no to that, if that popped up. And then the, uh, but she got this thing and she said, you know, it was very panicking to see that. But then really quickly after that, she got a message saying that I was okay. And I, and she's like, did you write that? Or was that? And I said, no, that was like a, that was like a selection. You know, it was already written that I'm fine. Don't worry. And so I just said yes to that. That's really, really cool that that thing exists. And that's in there. Uh, Somebody died at the local mountain bike park around here and he was by himself riding. And I don't know if this would have helped him or not if he had it, I don't know if he did have it and it just didn't work or if, um, he already perished, you know, like in the crash itself, or if he perished later, I don't know the details of it, you know, but I could totally see that this is applicable and, and, uh, does happen that you've crashed and you need help, especially if you're mountain bike, I could see it like, or remote with gravel riding. If you're doing off-road stuff way out in the wilderness, uh, and you crash and you need help, you could, uh, really use this technology and it's I've got a Garmin 945 so it's at least in that that device I, I don't know if it works with the I know it definitely works with the phone to make the call but does the phone have crash detection in it too and the two of them combined work I don't know the details of it but I just also had a thought if I <laughs> during the Pine Burden 320 
if I wanted somebody to come rescue me, I could have just thrown my watch against a tree. <laughs> it's like, calling Emily. Like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm dying out here. Come help me. But anyway, that was really cool. A uh, silver lining to uh, nearly hurting myself during a crash was to discover this thing that works. And also to kind of see it in action was like, man, this is part of what I'm paying for, you know, is, is an adventure. And boy, I'm getting, a, I'm getting a ride out of this. And right about then, the guy from Kingwood passed me. And he's like, are you all right? I said, yeah, I'm fine, you know. And he said, uh, okay, well, I'll see you. And being a better mountain biker than me, he took off. And I didn't see him the rest of the race, which was interesting because it turns out I beat him. I think I beat him. Because I know for sure what happened was he, he said that he stopped at a gas station and got a milkshake. <laughs> and that's also another cool feature of these races. And of this race specifically, how many mountain bike races have a gas station in the middle of the race? And this one does. As you hit the second mountain bike park, Rocky Hill Ranch, and it goes through a subdivision, it's on the side of a highway and there's a convenience store at the front of the subdivision. And I think that's where he went in and got a milkshake. And he said after the race that he was just tired and he, he was just wanted a milkshake. So he went in and got a milkshake. And I thought, man, you know what? That's like gravel racing. The Gravel Locos race in Heiko, Texas, you pass you know gas stations and people stop and get food. It's like doing like an adventure ride or like doing the, the um, Continental Divide race or Appalachian Trail. You know, you stop at gas stations and, and refuel and it's totally part of the deal. Anyway, so I finished out the mountain bike part and I noticed that, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated and a little edgy and that's a sign of low blood sugar. So I made sure to, to pound more fuel so that I would feel better. And I did, but I didn't do quite enough. And as I'm leaving the, the bike park, Emily and Kylie are gone. And that was understood that that's what was going to happen because by the time I'm leaving the mountain bike park, to hit the open road again. That's about the time that the pros and race leaders are gonna be close to finishing because it's 20 miles back to the finish line plus four miles of mountain biking. And Emily and Kylie needed to get in the truck and drive back to be at the finish line to be ready to get video of Kai finishing and, and watch all that. And then they're gonna have the award ceremony pretty soon after that. And so they couldn't be waiting on me to help me at an aid station where I could totally take care of myself anyway. And yeah, they said when they got that alert that I had crashed, they were trying to decide whether to head back or not to see if I was okay, but they didn't want to miss Kai's finish. And then when they got that second message that I was fine, then they said, oh, okay, well, let's go to the finish line. Let's leave Brett to uh, fend for himself in the woods. He'll be fine. <laughs> so now I'm out on the open road again, and it's a mix of headwind and tailwind because it's a different path than on the way out. And I got to try out something cool. It was hilly enough that there were some descents where I got to use the dropper post on my mountain bike to get low and descend even faster, which has become a thing that, are pe that, that people are talking about more and more, is they had to ban this position of where people sit on the top tube of their bike in road biking and descend, uh, you know, hanging over the front of the bike. Because while it's really aero, it's really freaking dangerous. And people started doing it because some pros started doing it and they showed it on TV. And it's so dangerous, they just outright banned it. And then with the onset of gravel biking and you have uh, these road bikes that are really fast, but without uh, flat aero tubes, a lot of gravel bikes are round tube and they put uh, some dropper posts and gravel bikes on occasion. It, if you ride gravel, that's like really steep and uh, more on the mountain bike end of things. 
And a dropper post, for those that don't know, that are totally road and triathlon and not off-road uh, mountain biking, is it's a lever that you press on your handlebars and your seat post will drop down. And what it does is it lowers your seat so low that you can get your body mass way back over the rear tire. And it is tremendously helpful in mountain biking to give you confidence to go down stuff. And my bike happens to have one. They add a little bit of weight. So like Kai's bike doesn't have one. That way his is a super fast, lightweight race mountain bike. My bike does have one because mine's more for like adventure and dropping into stuff if I don't eject. And uh, it adds a little bit of weight, but that's something I got to experiment with. I'm, dro- I'm going downhill really fast in the, in the arrow bars, arrow position. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going <laughs> to drop the seat. And it was weird, man. I'm like, is this more arrow? I, you're, you're definitely more of a ball. It just feels so different. Like, I guess it's more arrow. And technically it is. The experts all say it's very arrow to do that. And somehow, the, the, the problem is with triathlon and road bikes is they've become so arrow that the seat post is flattened. And to have a dropper post, that seat tube needs to be round. And it adds weight. So five years from now, 10 years from now, they'll have this figured out where you can have an arrow seat post that also is a dropper post. So you can, you can drop it while going uh, downhill. But right now, it's more of a mountain bike thing. And it happened to be on a mountain bike on the road. So I dropped the seat and it was pretty cool. But anyway, I'm riding along looking for the guy from Kingwood, see where he is. But he's apparently eating a milkshake and <laughs> he's smarter than me. And I start getting a leg cramp early on on the road part. And I think it was from the crash and then stressing myself out, trying to run up hills and pushing a heavy bike. Uh, oh, and arrow bars, by the way, um, I did the math on that too. Uh, I don't have carbon arrow bars. I have aluminum ones, so they're kind of heavy. And I figure over the mountain bike course, they added about a minute to maybe two minutes over three hours of mountain biking, the extra weight, you know, because mountain biking is a very weight dependent uh, sport because of all the surging and slowing down and accelerating, slowing down and accelerating and how vertical it is. So weight makes a big impact. So it could easily add like a minute, maybe two minutes to have these on my bike. But then out on the open road, they're saving like nine minutes. So the, the wash is, is about, you know, there's still a benefit of about seven minutes. So I start getting this cramp on the inside of my left thigh up near my growing. I feel pretty good. So I'm a little bit confused why I've got a cramp. But again, you know, it's probably from the stress of the crash and overexerting myself trying to get the bike up the other side and, and then having to walk my bike a little bit more and run up some hills. And I felt, yeah, I did feel tired during the second half of that mountain bike course. So I don't think I was fueling enough. So I don't have any, I don't have many options of what I can do. So what I did was I just upped my fueling and upped my hydration and it took care of it. About five minutes later, the cramping went away and boy, I was worried. I was like, I can, I cannot do the rest of this race for this long with the leg cramp this early on. I've still got hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes to be suffering with a, um, I was just like uh, dooms forecasting you know, like, oh God, what's this going to be like? Because it hurt. But upping my fueling and upping my hydration, which had electrolyte in it, made it go away. And then I started feeling a whole lot better too. And there's one way you can tell that your fueling and everything is on point as if in the middle of a race or in a workout and you're playing music, you start singing to the music. That's a really good indicator. That's one I've always used. That means that your fueling is really great and on point. So anyway, I start singing to the music again. I'm having a good time. And I'm uh, passing an occasional person. No one's passing me, which is a really good strategy in long races is to start off even and then to be passing people the entire race 
and get faster and faster and faster as people blow up, uh, you want to blow up at the finish line, <laughs> not before the finish line. So if you're passing people, they're blowing up and you're not. So you know you're on the, on the better side of things. And interestingly enough, this is where I do care if people start tacking on and trying to draft off of me because this is where the race for me actually really begins. If I pass somebody and then they hang on, I'm helping them get to the finish line with me. And there's not much between us and the finish line left. And I don't want that to happen. So the strategy is when you pass somebody, pass them crazy fast and crazy hard and sneak up on them and blow by them so they don't have time to react and latch on and get that huge drafting benefit of being right behind you. So there was four or five times on the way back where I'm riding, there's a person on the horizon and I could tell that they would be a good enough cyclist that if I pass them, that they would try to latch on. Because on occasion I would pass somebody that's like really blown up and stuff and they're just, or they're talking and chatting and stuff like that. They're, they're races, they're, they're joy riding at this point. But you tell there's some people that are still really racing. And so what I would do is be really strategic and pass them on a downhill as the downhill has just started and there's still a lot of downhill left to go and make sure I don't coast as I'm coming up behind them so they don't hear that freewheel sound. And yeah, that's what I would do. I would come roaring past somebody as arrow as possible and stay as arrow as possible so that there was a big gap between me and them by the time that they had time to react. So they're fighting the full headwind and my bike having arrow bars and me being in the arrow position and them not would give me an advantage where they would not be able, even if they surged and tried to catch me, they would not be able to. And so like I said, I did that like four or five times. Did that last race, race before that. It really works. And also I enjoy doing it. Now we're racing, you know? And there was one guy that I did that to towards the end of the road ride where I noticed that he tried to hang on a lot. And he got smaller and smaller over the, in the rearview um, mirror over the horizon. And as I got to Bluff Creek Ranch to finish out the four miles of mountain bike ranch, he was gone. Like I couldn't see him anymore. I couldn't see anybody behind me. So I thought, oh, this is great. I can, oh, I also couldn't see anybody in front of me either. I wasn't going to catch anybody. I thought I saw one person way off in the front, but I wasn't going to catch anybody and nobody was going to catch me. So I could enjoy the last four miles and not ride casual or anything like that, but ride at a, at a decent clip, but not kill myself. And, and uh, especially with that front tire, you know, being a little bit uh, sketchy, I was just like, I'm just going to enjoy the, enjoy the last little bit. I felt fine. So I, I was holding back and I definitely could have gone faster, <laughs> a lot faster. So I'm just riding along and I'm listening to my music and I, I never know, you know, they could cancel this race next year. Something could happen. The parks, could, one of the parks could close down. You know, I don't know if this is ever going to be my last time I ever do this race. So if it makes no difference, I'm just going to ride uh, the last part of it as like a little celebration and just kind of easy and fun. Like we did with the Pine Burden, the last few miles, the last day, you know, also was just, you know, a celebration of the, something we accomplished. So I'm riding and definitely, you know, racing, but on the easier side of racing the last four miles and I'm enjoying it. The bike's perform. Oh, the bike had a little bit of a shifting problem, but I'm just enjoying it. And I'm just kind of da, 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 da. And then it comes out of the woods and then it crosses a meadow and then takes a left and, uh, goes up, uh, across a finish line that goes through a barn, which is really cool. There's longhorn cattle around and stuff. And, oh, when I came into the bike park, I noticed off in the distance near the barn, 
they were doing the finish ceremony and people had their arms up over their head. I couldn't tell if Kai was one of them or not, you know, and like, uh, so that was interesting. You know, there's noise going on over there. So anyway, I go through the woods, do my four miles of mountain biking and so it's like 20 minutes, 22 minutes, I think. And then I come out of the meadow and I'm, I'm riding and, uh, I take, yeah, the, the gentle left and it's a slight uphill on a farm gravel road and <laughs> after the meadow and there's a little crowd there cheering, you know, and I see Emily kind of, they're like, yay, like that. And as I'm coming up and the finish line is seriously like a hundred feet in front of me, that guy blows by me, the guy that I passed on the road. <laughs> and I think I, I saw my, my peripheral vision and uh, as he was coming up behind me, but I didn't have time to react just like I'd done to him. And he blew by me at the very last second and beat me by three seconds at the finish line. And I was so like shocked, but also laughing. And uh, also like we're coasting after we come through the barn out on the other side and I fist bump him because I'm just like, holy crap, man, this is, oh, and I tried to, you know, I tried to catch him at the finish line. He blew by me, but I also started trying to sprint, but I didn't, I, it just shocked me. And like, I didn't know what to do. And, and I thought, uh, this is racing, man. This is so funny. And it really makes no difference. It made a tiny difference because, uh, he got 10th. And uh, I could have been top ten, quote unquote, but um, and so I got eleventh by by um, by three seconds. But our age group was pretty small; it was like twenty something people. It was like twenty two, twenty five people, including DNFs and stuff, maybe twenty eight. But anyway, so top ten really doesn't mean much. And uh, so I thought it was interesting. My reaction was was laughing and uh, and also excited and um, and happy for him that he actually beat me because we were racing. And, uh, you know, you, that's what you came there for, for, you know, that's what you paid for. And, and I remember, uh, I said to Emily and, and I don't think, I don't know if Kai was right there cause he's doing award ceremony stuff, but I was like, why didn't you tell me? And they go, we were, we were yelling, he's coming up behind you, <laughs> but you didn't seem to understand and uh but basically yeah they were they were yelling like oh he's coming up behind you and i just thought that they were just cheering for my finish because while i was in the woods mountain biking that last four miles i was definitely looking around and making sure that there was nobody behind me but it's so twisty and turning in the woods that i never saw the guy so it was a total shock and you know racing itself you don't have to win what you Get out of just the enjoyment of competition and giving your best. And even if somebody beats you, it's the battle and the competition that's fun. And he did to me exactly what I'd done to him earlier. He snuck attack and got the jump on me. I couldn't do anything about it. And I found the irony like comical and funny. It's like, <laughs> so I'm just laughing and uh, finish. And then Emily told me about this drama. There was some guy in the pro wave that acted like a real jerk towards other people. Because at the beginning of the race, some people took a wrong turn and Kai was in that group that supposedly took a wrong turn. And when they realized they took a wrong turn and ended up, uh, and this is very early on in the race, still on the mountain bike trails, first half of the first mountain bike trails, uh, they ended up in front of the other pros. And so they stopped and waited. And then when the other pros caught up, you know, just a little bit later, they started riding again. And that guy started yelling and acted like a real jerk, apparently. I wasn't there, allegedly. And was cussing them out, I heard, uh, with the F-bomb and stuff, that don't you 
latch on to us. You can't ride this train kind of thing. And his reasoning apparently was they should have gone back and rode the right part of the, the course, which I totally do get. I understand that you would think that. But also this mountain bike park is, it's the oldest mountain bike park in Texas, I think. And there's all kinds of trails that you could easily take the wrong trail and make a mistake. One A few years ago, they forgot to open a gate and the whole race had to go around a gate out onto the road and then down like a mile and then back onto the course again. And uh, so how do you know that actually those guys went the right way and that Kai's group didn't go the right way? It could have been the other way around. There's no way I'm going back and riding the right part of the trail. <laughs> I don't know that that's right. And uh, so the, the sportsman like thing to do was to just, you know, wait. They waited for that group. And then uh, when that group caught up, they rode with them. And then that guy was such a jerk that uh, Kai's group backed off and let them ride ahead, like over the horizon a little bit, because that guy was being such a jerk. And it's so early on in the race, it really makes no difference. And it would be like the triathlon equivalent would be like a really foggy swim and an Ironman, and you miss a turn on the buoy, right? And you turn one buoy too early, and then you realize it when you, so like you missed one buoy, turn, you missed a corner, one in the swim, right? And then when you finish the swim, you realize that you're ahead by like a few minutes of the rest of the swimmers. And you're like, oh, crap. Well, you can't go back and like redo that. You don't know where the turnoff was or where you missed it. And so out of respect, you kind of, you like hold back and wait for the, for the rest of the swimmers to catch up. And then you, you uh, start, you, you go with them again. And with the pros, like, it doesn't really matter. They're all the same speed. It's so early in the race. It's like, who cares? So anyway, apparently there was like some discussion after the race about the way this guy acted. And I asked Emily and Kai and Kylie, who was it? Who was this guy that was yelling at people like that and dropping the F-bomb and stuff for an honest mistake? And they wouldn't tell me who it was. <laughs> Because they were worried I was going to go over to them and go, what's your effing problem, dude? Probably get myself banned from racing in the future. But also, it didn't seem to bother Kai all that much. I mean, I could tell it bothered him. But that's the kind of thing that can make a person, you know, want to quit bike racing when there's behavior like that. And there, there's something else I saw in racing earlier this year that uh, was very unprofessional that could turn somebody off from bike racing. And you got to really think about that there's always this next generation of upcoming kids that are becoming adults. And if you're an adult and you act like a jerk, there's more people watching that than what you think. And also, if you're a pro and in your mid-30s, that's a really poor way to behave as an adult. So anyways, we left. I saw the guy uh, from Kingwood and he said, yeah, uh, hook up with him on Strava. And he stopped for a milkshake, which was funny. The award ceremony was wrapping up. They give away a bottle of champagne or a bottle of wine or something with all, every race class that wins. So I saw some of that. They also have smaller versions of this race. Uh, they have um, three laps of Bluff Creek Ranch, and that's called the quiz instead of the excruciation exam. It's called the excruciation quiz. So that's all mountain biking, no road. And then they have one and a half laps of the ranch, and that's called the review. So there's stuff for all ages, all distances. It's only the excruciation exam that does the full-on marathon with the road involved and stuff like that. And then back to the guy that was being a jerk. I'll never forget this really great lesson my mom unintentionally taught me. It was a very zen moment. <laughs> Here's your moment of zen for the race. I was a teenager, about 16, close to driving age, and we were in traffic in Houston, and this guy cut my mom off. My mom was driving. I was in the front passenger seat 
of a station wagon that looks like the you know wagon from a family vacation. It's a Woody wagon, a '86 uh, Crown Vic station wagon with a monster engine in it and everything. It had the Mustang engine in it, <laughs> 5.0. But anyway, that car was so cool. And anyway, uh, this guy cuts off my mom and um, honks at her and flips her off as he cuts her off and right in front of her at this major intersection on high, if you're from Houston on highway 1960. And I turned to my mom and I go, aren't you going to do anything? Aren't you going to yell at him or honk back or something? Golly. And then my mom said, there is nothing I could do to him to make him feel worse about himself than he already does. <laughs> and I was like, it sank. It took a minute for it to sink in. And I was like, wow, okay. And maybe we talked about it some more. I've definitely thought about it a lot over the years. And I've, I've seen this in action. This is very true. If somebody's acting like a jerk, right, it, at an inappropriate moment where it doesn't seem right, there's something else going on in their life that's making them act that way. The times that I've been uh, rude and mean and, and whatever, and or I've seen somebody else you know, act that way, um, like, I don't know, you're in line at the sandwich, Subway sandwich shop or something like that. Somebody's mean. There's like, they're having, there's stress somewhere else in their life that's so bad that they're just frustrated in general and uh, they're taking it out on you or on somebody else because, you know, they're at the end of their rope with other stuff. And you engaging with somebody and getting into a fight over something doesn't make any difference, right? So like in Kai's situation, I want to make that guy feel bad. Well, he wouldn't have acted like he did unless he's already feeling bad about something that's going on in his life. And for somebody to be lashing out and dropping F-bombs and yelling at people over an easy mistake at the very first part of a four-something-hour bike race for these guys, there's nothing I could do to that guy to make him feel even worse than what he already does about himself. So the right thing to do is just to leave it alone. And to quote the other thing my mom used to say in traffic was, he'll get his. <laughs> and she was almost always right, man. We'd be on road trips and some guy would do somebody, some guy, girl, whatever, would do something terrible in traffic. And then she'll say, he'll get his. And then my brother and I, we were little, we would count the miles until we'd find him pulled over on the side of the road by a cop. It was like clockwork every time. So anyway, we drive back to College Station. Halfway on the way back, there's a Mexican restaurant in a small town called Caldwell, one of the towns where the football team is the biggest thing around. The high school mascots painted on the water tower, the Caldwell Hornets, <laughs> and a great Mexican restaurant. We ate there and got home a little bit later. Still really haven't unpacked everything because the very next day, uh, the snow and ice started in the afternoon, but that morning the next day, Kai needed to get back to Texas State to start school, and Emily wanted to go with him to help him get set up in his apartment and stuff for the new school year. And now I'm sitting here at the house with just a ton of bike crap surrounding me, so I'm both in heaven and hell. I love bike stuff, but that also needs to be put away. And uh, there's snow outside. And Emily's trapped in San Marcos uh, two hours away with icy roads, and she's got to get back here to work. And I don't know how she's going to do that by tomorrow because the roads look really dangerous, and I hope everything works out all right. So after the race, you know, some basic questions. Um, am I sore? No, I'm not sore. Does triathlon training help? Absolutely. The swimming and the running definitely helps with marathon mountain biking. It is the best thing to be in life is to be training for triathlons. When's my next triathlon? Probably this spring. I'm going to do a half Ironman. I'll figure out a, uh, a real one or do self-supported one. How's the bike? The bike seems to be okay. The tape on the helmet. 
I'm going to leave it on there for actually the rest of the winter. I think it's pretty slick. I'm old enough where I don't care about how I look. I've been that way for 10 years now. Cool things I learned. Triathlon tops make really good uh, running and uh, cycling vests because they have pockets in the back and they're sleeveless. So you can do a lot with them and they're easy to take off as long as you use full zip ones. The Garmin Alert is really cool. Oh, Kai got fifth place and won $40, I think. And he's a little bummed about not placing higher. He got beat by 10 minutes, but yeah, it only took him and the rest of the pro waves like um, four hours to do this race. It took me six and a half hours. <laughs> like I always say, you think you're good until a pro shows up or an Olympian. That's the other one I say, until an Olympian shows up. Then you realize who's actually talented and who's fast. The uh, swimming really helps with the upper body strength of mountain biking. And then the running uh, really helps with running uphill, pushing a bike, uh, mountain biking. Will I do this race again? I think so. I'm going to write down all my notes and put down that I need a little bit uh, more serious tread on the front tire than I thought. I'll write down what I did use and that wasn't enough. And I'll probably with a permanent marker make a mark on that tire because the tire is worth keeping. It's still a good tire, but I'll probably like mark it like X1 or EX1 and EX2 on the other tire and say, use don't use tire EX1, use tire EX2 and that it's marked with permanent marker. And it also depends on if the trail's wet or not. Yeah, the Garmin alert thing is really cool. I need to make a note to go over if Kai does this race again next year. So this, the, the whole like ugliness of the, the other guy yelling at people and stuff, it makes like the first thing it'll affect is like, do I want to do this race again next year? And it's like, well, no, if I was, you know, in Kai's shoes. And that affects race registration, you know, and the, the industry, you know, makes it's harder to survive when people don't show up because of the way somebody acted. Uh, that's one unintended consequence of acting like that. Uh, would I arrow my bike out as much as I did uh, this year, uh, again next year? Yeah, totally. I've already taken a video of my bike and in my notes, I'm going to say, go back and watch the video of all the things that I did and how I did them so that it's easier to do next year. Why do I keep doing marathon mountain biking? Because I'm a very outdoorsy person. And that's what I love about triathlon, first off, is that it's outdoors. But even more outdoors and outdoors is mountain biking because you're really in the woods at that point. And it's just one of the coolest sports and like I've said on shows previous, the fact that there's mountain biking events that are really, really long where you really get to put to use all your triathlon experience, your Ironman experience for pacing and endurance and fueling and strategy and tactics and such and your engineering mind of, of what actually matters, aerodynamics versus power versus weight. It's so fun, like, like trying to solve the puzzle. That's the greatest thing about Ironman is that you can't be great at all three sports, right? You have to try to chop away at this while adding to that, you know, to find your, like, uh, I'm a strong swimmer, but, and, uh, a pretty good biker. And then my worst sport is running. So I have to hold back on the swim so that I have energy, uh, for the run at the end. That's the way I finally figured out, uh, to start moving up in triathlon. And it's so frustrating, but you have to give up things to get things. And marathon mountain biking is like that. When a race, any kind of race, trail running, triathlons, mountain biking, open water marathon swimming, when a race gets long enough where you can't succeed at it by just pure brute force, you have to, have to actually think and use strategies and give up this to get that. That's where it gets really cool. There's a saying in education to be careful with putting all your eggs in the sports basket. Because the most powerful muscle you have to make a living and to survive in this world isn't a muscle at all. It's your brain. 
And even if you're lucky enough to become a successful pro athlete, it's so few people and it's so short-lived and one little mistake can end it all. But what makes humans special besides being endurance athletes is that as long as we keep our brains intact, you can make a living and a good life for yourself the rest of your life till you're 100 years old by using your intelligence and strategy and thinking. So sports where you have to use strategy and tactics and engineering and think things out and really get to put your brain to work to gain the upper edge, that's really cool. And marathon mountain biking is like that. You have to really look at the course and figure out, you know, where do I apply power? Where's the wind coming from? What is the right suspension setup? What tires do I use for this set of trails in these weather conditions at this temperature? Will my chain lube last long enough? What's plan B if my bike breaks? Plan C if plan B doesn't work or something else happens? Does aerodynamics matter or does weight matter more? All right, I'm back. Emily just called from San Marcos. Hopefully uh, she can make it back without sliding all over the road. Her brakes are making some kind of noise. And Kai, having worked at a bike shop and both of us having lots of experience now with disc brakes, rotors, and pads, it's actually pretty cool. He checked out her her pads and said there's plenty of pad left. So whatever's making the grinding noise, I said, this is me over the phone diagnosing remotely. Uh, maybe there's some um, grit or grime or sand in her um, and her brake pads, and that's what's making the noise. But there's definitely plenty of pad left, Kai says. So that's good. Holy crap, it's snowing again. This is not good. Anyway, we just got word that work might be canceled tomorrow, which is comical. <laughs> there's people chiming in. Uh, we're in that situation. This is so ridiculous, where they called everybody back into work and said that we can't work from home, right? Well, now that uh, we can't get into work, they're asking for, for people to work from home. And uh, somebody chimed in and said, but there is no work from home policy. <laughs> I find the irony of it as comical as it is frustrating. Okay, back to Zentri. Let's talk about training and coaching. As you already well know, I'm not only a triathlon coach, but I'm an Ironman coach. And not only that, but I coach all three of the individual sports individually. And have trained and coached many others and myself to a lot of success in endurance sports. And there is a definite right way to train and a way to balance it all out to get in a nice base volume of training so that you're happy and healthy. And then you pick out some races over the next six months to year. And as those approach, you narrow your focus and train specifically for those. And the best tool out there still is Training Peaks. And that's what I use. I've probably coached a couple hundred athletes using Training Peaks by now, and it's fantastic. It connects to your Garmin, whatever device you're using, Sunto, Wahoo. I build you a custom plan and work with you to figure out what days of the week, how long, and how much of each sport to work in to get your base volume up to where it needs to be, and then focus in on the weakest links of your chain to improve your, let's say you wanna up your FTP, your bike power, you want to extend out your endurance. I'm working with somebody right now, for example, that used to have a really high FTP and he is trying to get back somewhere even close to where he was before. I said, oh, that's easy. We need to do this. We need to X, Y, and Z, build it out. Working with somebody else that's already doing a lot of volume. So where they need the work is the nutrition to make sure they're fueling their workouts right. And post-workout, making sure they're taking on enough fuel so they're not tired all the time and they have energy for the next workout. And also as my day job in IT and tech, I do a lot of mapping and weather analysis. So we look at where you live, 
where the race is going to be, and we build training routes and workouts that use your terrain or your trainer if you have to, or treadmill to build your training program to match your goal races so that you're going into everything knowing what it's going to feel like and making sure that you've trained for the hardest parts. And let me give a little example of that. Ironman Canada. When I did it in Whistler, there is a monstrous hill climb that goes up to a ski resort. This is a really good story. And it's in the first third of the bike portion. The rest of it's a regular Ironman. There's even a long flat section of the bike ride as it goes through a river valley. But what you need to train for to be successful at that race is that one monstrous mountain climb. It's not even a hill climb, it's a mountain. The swim's normal, the run's a little bit rolly. There's bears actually out on the run, so you should probably look up a little bit about bears, <laughs> what to do. <laughs> they had to close part of the run section uh, for, uh, for a little bit because there was a mama bear and some cubs out on the, out on the run course. So anyway, the, uh, the big thing is training for that hill. And looking at your power and your weight, you can plug it into some calculators and figure out that it's going to be this long. For me, it was like, let's say 28 minutes at uh, 280 watts to climb it at a respectable speed at the target that I wanted to do, let's say. So I did regular Ironman training, but I specifically added in on Zwift climbing the big mountain that's called Calm, the Calm Climb. They didn't have Alp de Zwift in there yet for 20 something minutes at that power. Actually, I need to reverse that a little bit. I did the climb over and over again, like once a week. And I figured out what power I needed to do it at so that I would feel good when I finished at the top and I wasn't blown out. And then I could keep riding for another couple hours, few hours after that ride was over and then go out for a jog afterwards. My legs felt okay. And I figured out by doing that climb virtually that it was at like, let's say 250, 270, 280 watts is what I could sustain and then recover from and be able to do the rest of the race just fine. So I built that into my training. I told my friends that I was going to do the race with that they should do that too. <laughs> they didn't. And then when we did that race, I went up that climb knowing exactly how hard to go and I was able to do it. And I had a fantastic race because I'd practiced the hardest part of the race multiple times. So I knew exactly how hard to go and not be destroyed for the rest of the race. And like this marathon mountain bike race that we just had, the hardest part of the race was going to be the Rocky Hill Ranch mountain bike course. And I went and pre-rode it twice the week before the race at an easy pace and built up the confidence that I knew I could do it. So when it did get hard out there, there was no question about whether or not I could finish it. Because I'd done it twice, back to back, the week before, and then took a week off to recover. So when we look at, let's say, Ironman Florida, you need to be able to put out it's like uh, half Ironman Texas uh, Galveston too. You need to put out even flat power the entire time. That's what you need to train for. If it's going to be a hot race, you need to train for the heat. If it's going to be a really hilly race like St. George, you need to be able to punch out hills over and over and over and over again and learn how to recover on the downhills. So we put you on hilly training. So it's like no big deal when you actually do the race day. And then your race becomes fun. So then when the finish line is in sight, you can actually really race it. One thing I like to say is train the course. And the closer you get to the race, the more you train, like the race course itself, you sink a lot of money into the sport and a lot of time, which is money. And you deserve to show up at the start line and have a great day and let the race be a celebration of your fitness and be able to get the full amount out of your body that its potential can be. And I also coach in tactics about how to make the race enjoyable from beginning to end. 
and also train you the right way so the day after the race, you're not a complete wreck. I took the day off after this marathon mountain bike race just because I knew I should, not because I have to. I feel fine doing the Pine Burden 320, 320 miles over three days, gravel, logging roads, highway, sleeping in a hotel and somebody else's house, starting out every morning near freezing temps, riding at night. My right shoulder started to get sore (laughs) at the the trapezoid muscle up near the neck at the very end of day three, right on cue. I mean, that you couldn't get more perfect timing than the body to start falling apart than that. It's exactly what I trained for. It's perfect. Training to be successful and to enjoy the success of being an ultra endurance athlete is not a mystery. And it's not some super athletic, magical gift that only a few people have. If you are a human being, you are an endurance athlete. That's what we are. Being up on two legs so that we can kind of gallop and then also having opposable thumbs so that we can carry water and our eyes being high enough so we can see all over the tall prairie grass of the African Serengeti Plains gave us the ability to be endurance runners where we just run down our prey and wear them out. There's a really cool documentary film about it where they show there's a tribe in Africa that still does it today, and it's so cool to watch. There's this big deer antelope uh, animal called the kudu that's in the, I'm sure, the deer family or antelope family. It's got a big set of horns that are arced. They look really cool. But anyway, the, the hunters from the tribe, they pick the biggest one out of the herd, and then they run walk for hours. And the point is to not let the herd stop, and in the heat of the day, Don't give them the chance to rest in the shade and don't give them the chance to stop at water. But the tribesmen, hunters, men and women, can carry water in bladders or in gourds. And they take turns resting in the shade and drinking water while the other ones keep pushing the herd. And the biggest one has the hardest time shedding heat and they make sure that it doesn't get time to rest in the shade. And they keep their eyes on it and they keep jogging for hours until it just collapses and they literally walk up to it in spirit. Those are your cousins. We're all the same. We've been doing this for tens of thousands of years. The fact that you are a human being makes you an endurance athlete. There's a reason we get a runner's high from running. We love it. Sure, some people are better at it than other people. Let the people that are really good at it be pros. But everybody can do a marathon, can do an Ironman, can do an Ultraman, can do a marathon mountain bike race if they just eat right and exercise an hour or two a day and a little bit longer on the weekends. That's all it takes. And with modern technology, I can hook you up to Training Peaks and together we can watch your mileage and your heart rate and talk about what you're eating while exercising, while not exercising, how hard you're going. A lot of people go too hard, then they can't get in the distance they need to because they need to stop because they've been going too hard. So you slow down a little bit so that you can actually get in the distance and the volume that you need to be successful at the distance of races that you want to do. And once you get in the volume that you're supposed to get in, then naturally you start speeding up and you mix in some intervals here and there to increase your power, mix in some hills, do the same thing, also take you up to the next level. And boom, the next thing you know, you're an Ironman. Now, the reason you hire a coach is for every situation and every problem, there's a solution. Knowing what that solution is and also how to apply it in your situation takes experience. Because a lot of the answers are, it depends. Oh, I'm sick. Should I train today? Well, it depends. Where are you sick? If it's above the neck, like a head cold, you know, like a sinus thing, 
it's probably okay to train, but easily. Don't go too hard. If it's below the neck, like your guts or your lungs, don't train. You're better off recovering. You're going to do more harm than good. I got this group ride coming up. Should I do it or should I not? Well, it depends. Let's look at your training plan and see where your hard ride is because group rides tend to turn into kind of miniature races and hard rides and people go too hard during their group rides. But let's turn that on its head and use the group ride as your hard ride. Okay, and now that we know when this group ride is, what day of the week, what time of day it is and how long it is, we can schedule our other bike rides to complement that to be your easier rides, for example, and also your runs to complement your rides And also, where do we want to put our focus? Are you a better cyclist or are you a better runner? Because you want to improve the thing that you're not the best at so that you have better races. I love biking. I bike so much and have so much fun doing it. That's not the thing I need to work on so much to improve my overall triathlon experience. Running is where I needed to put some focus early on in my career. So I needed to scale back the effort on the bike a little bit, like the intensity on the bike, so that I could put intensity in on the running to get my running up to the point where it matched my biking. And our goal is to get you to the point where you have confidence. You know you can do the distance. You can look at your numbers and I coach you through your numbers to prove to you that you're gonna be fine on race day. So now let's look at how we can enjoy it. And I really do enjoy coaching people. I think everybody deserves that feeling of realizing that they actually are an endurance athlete. And that feeling you get when you're out and about town or you're at work or family stuff, realizing that you are using your body's potential and you are super fit and you feel good, your joints and your muscles, no matter what your age is, you feel like you're 20 years old because you really do. If you train right, your body feels like you're 20 years old all the time. It's really amazing. And your mind is sharp and clear and you wake up every day looking forward to what you're gonna do today and the race that you got coming up next week, next month, six months from now. It's just so amazing. So hit me up and we can get it done for you. You can find me at texafornia at gmail.com. Send me an email, put coaching in the subject line. I charge $200 a month, full custom coaching. And besides coaching you, my other goal is to train you how to train yourself. So consider it an investment. A year of coaching for me. And if you ask questions, I'll tell you how to do it. And you can coach yourself and you can end up coaching yourself and maybe coaching some other people. It's pretty awesome. Okay, enough about that. There is a race that Kai wants to do that I might do, but that's down the road a few months. My race calendar is actually clear for the near future, so I'll be able to finish up talking about the Pine Burden 320 that Kai and I did. So that'll be the next episode. So let's wrap this bad boy up. Everybody stay safe out there, work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down. Out.